I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Many thanks for coming. Welcome. Mm-hmm. to this wonderful discussion to be uh, with the great Timothy Norton, who Hello. has come today from Shoreham, um, of course, the, the uh, village, the town of, of Samuel uh, Palmer, of William Blake, and that might well come into the conversation tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, delighted to be hosting uh, Timothy Norton here at the London Review Bookshop, of course, mm-hmm. for many reasons, not least because the bookshop contains many different shelves with different labels. <laughs> and the, and the, the wonderful book we're about to uh, launch to here tonight, along with, of course, the earlier works by Tim, is published by Pelican. Now, those of you who will know uh, the great lineage of Pelican books will notice something, if you can see the cover from here, something very important about this particular Pelican book, and in fact, the whole new Pelican operation. This Pelican is flying, is mid-flight, whereas the old Pelican, reminding us here of its lineage on the spine, is dormant, waiting for flight. So, full of potential, but this one, of course, is up in the air and doing what Pelicans do best with a wide wingspan. Now, the difference between the old penguin pelican of about 50 years ago and the new pelican, of course, is the difference between the idea of the book Mm. and the need and the urgency of the book now. And this is the book absolutely Mm. in the latter category. This is a book of urgent Mm. but delightful uh, necessity for the times we find ourselves in. Hence, the flying of the pelican. But you will find more details um, in relation to the older pelican in the design of the book, which we will come to without doubt. Mm. Later on. So I'm delighted to say that I first met Tim back in November in Porto Mm -hmm. at the festival, the forum rather, of the future, which is a (coughs) festival of thinking uh, from world-class thinkers, writers, artists, scientists, and so on. Um, I don't want to particularly promote the forum of the future, but I will actually spend about 10 seconds now doing so because it's a free Mm. forum. It's a free festival of the future curated by the city of Porto with, without any corporate involvement whatsoever, mm-hmm. free to anybody to come uh, to attend from across the world. And uh, the theme of the festival uh, in November uh, was exactly uh, uh, in, in the, uh, area, in the uh, area of inquiry of, of mm-hmm. Tim's work. So he was the perfect speaker uh, for this festival. However, at the same time, across uh, the Iberian Peninsula, he was also launching his uh, ongoing role as Minister of the Future in Barcelona. <laughs> so the future is very central to what, of course, what Tim's thinking about, which is why this book, of course, takes on an added potency and urgency. But of course, the future comes from the present and then, of course, further back in the past. And all time zones 
coexist within the potential of the future, just as all species and all forms of matter coexist. The reason I mention that, of course, is because that is one of the central planks that we will uh, launch, if you can launch a plank, um, this evening (laughs) as part of the great uh, uh, event of being ecological and its arrival in the world. Many thanks to everyone at Mm -hmm. Penguin, of course, and at Pelican, if there is a separate Pelican office in the Penguin HQ for other birds, a kind of aviary of publishing possibility. <laughs> Many thanks to all the Pelican team, but particularly thanks tonight to Matt. Mm-hmm. He knows who he is, Matt Hutchinson, for making this event possible. Thanks to everyone, of course, at the bookshop and the wider LRB oh. family, particularly tonight, David, Claire and Gail, of course. Thank you for coming. So, Tim, mm. this book is, as I've said, hopefully, um, right of its moment, mm. incredibly urgent. It also takes your writing and your project into a slightly different space from yeah. these previous wonderful books. Uh, many people in the audience will know of the idea of hyperobjects, the idea of dark ecology, mm. which we will come to for those mm-hmm. uh, people who don't know them. But what was the imperative for you mm. in writing a book called Being Ecological, in which in the first few pages you absolutely deny most <laughs> of the central premises of that title? Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, does anyone want a kettle chip? <laughs> this event is not sponsored, of course, by kettles. <laughs> um, but, 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 but before we get too stupid, could we do a round of applause for the greatest host in the universe? Uh, oh, have you haven't done it yet. It could all go wrong. No, it's, it's, it's already gone right. <laughs> you know. Let's see what he, he, he's, the, he's the best, this guy. You know, every, every, everything now is downhill from here because it's me talking. Um, so... You know, when, when Penguin asked me to write this book, I felt like they'd given me this golden microphone to sort of help people in, <coughs> in the, like the stupid way that I know how to help people. And so I sort of thought, well, what am I going to say with this golden mic? Um, I want to do a little bit of a mode switch and not try to like push people too much. And so I decided I was going to write it straight after breakfast when my head is really fuzzy, you know, and I'm all sort of vague, I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm going to sort of write it in a slightly kind of curious sounding Laurie Anderson style. <coughs> um, and um, so it's a, it was a bit of a stretch, but maybe stretch is the wrong word. Maybe it was a bit of a, of, of a relax, you know, but, this, but, but the idea is this is a book for people who, you know, like are alive and living on this planet thing, you know, and not necessarily like really religiously committed to certain ideas about what to do about ecology, you know. Um, it, 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 it actually, um, I, I, I originally sent a, a, a blurb um, to, to Penguin that said something like, um, don't care about ecology, this book is for you. Um, thank you for laughing. And... Um, <laughs> Somehow that spirit seems to have managed to maintain itself through the through the production of the book, you know. So it's got this kind of quite because my 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 sense of it is that we talk to ourselves really aggressively about this horrible horrible thing that's happening. It's re- it's horrible, right? Like I I can only really think about it properly for about two seconds a day without like wanting to go into the fetal position and just die, you know. And I'm a great fan of like how not to die. Right, how to not be dead because being in the fetal position unfortunately doesn't really help, you know. And so, sort of, how to peel myself off the floor, you know, is very much on my own mind every day, you know. And so, maybe that's my, that's my, that's my contribution. That's my contribution to world peace. But really, what this book is, really, is um, uh, so 
I don't know about you, but um, one of the most powerful artists um, uh, of, of her generation is Yoko Ono. And um, I, um, one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me, actually, definitely the first powerful work of art that really like pushed me, you know, because I like being given a little bit of a push by the art, was Yoko's piece, This Is Not Here, and I saw it in the Imagine video. Um, John Lennon was assassinated when I was probably about 12 years old, and Imagine went to number one. And in the video, you know, John and Yoko are walking down the path, and they come to the front door, and there's that very beautiful sort of truth icicle music playing with the sort of truth icicle lyrics, right? Like, imagine there's no heaven. And then above the front door, it's a bit of one of Yoko's pieces. This is not here. It's a Fluxus piece. Just, the, just that phrase, this is not here, right? Like, utopia, yeah. Um, and I was very affected by it, and so I decided, wouldn't it be cool to do something like I saw in this book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shinryu Suzuki. It's a book about Zen meditation. And somewhere in the middle of that, I don't know if you've ever seen it, there's a pair of blank pages, and, in, and, and like a, there's a drawing of a fly, right? And, and it, it, it's never explained. It's just, it's just there. You know, the zen, 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 zen. Whoa, fly, ping. You know, thank you for laughing again. And like, so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have like two blank pages? Like if I could persuade Yoko to be like, this is not here in the middle of it. And so I'm very, very lucky. I did manage to persuade Yoko to put this in. So what this book really is, 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 is like Tim curating This Is Not Here by Yoko Ono. That's what it really is. Thank you. Well, our work here is done. Um, books go. are available. Like I say, does anybody want a chip? <laughs> we could pass the chip. There will be a competition later. I should there say will, this in really, advance. There will, really there will be, be three prizes, all in their own way, directly related to the theme of this unfolding conversation. Uh, questions, of course, to the audience, and the first person, mm. of course, to answer correctly wins, as in most competitions. Um, <laughs> more on that later. Um, but the idea of artists, of course, and engagement with artists mm. is fundamental, because you are um, Professor of English at Rice University I, in Houston. I am. Yeah. This is a book with, as yeah. I said at the beginning, without labels. Unlike many books, which are you know kind of mm. catalogued to certain shelves, this mm. has no shelf except the shelf from which the pelican launches. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you are a philosopher, primarily mm. known in the world oh. as increasingly a curator yeah. working with artists. Oh my God! But you're a professor of English, yeah. and yeah. you're writing often very culturally and, and intersecting yeah. with the cultural and putting those ideas in, in dialogue with enlightenment philosophers, with Buddhism, and yeah. so on. So what do you think of, and um, where, mm. where would you mm-hmm. ideally, if you are forced to or required to, place your project and therefore its role in larger culture? Well, I'm very glad you asked me that question. Yeah, um, so, like, if I was to have called myself a philosopher, I think I would have died of embarrassment, right? Like, so I never thought of myself that way. I, I know how to see poems. I've got this weird autistic ability to, like, understand what poems are about. You know, don't ask, you know. Um, and then, I, so I wrote this book that might be there <coughs> called, called The Ecological Thought. Mm. And for some stupid reason, I've got, I used to have Gary Snyder's job. He, he, he retired from University of California, and I took over his job. Mm. And so somebody gave Gary this book, and, and, and Gary read it, and it's <coughs> like, wow, this is, this is philosophy. I was like, oh, I've been labeled as a philosopher. Okay, I guess that's true. Because it had come to the point where explaining myself required another explanation of the explanation. And by that point, you're sort of doing philosophy, aren't you? Um, thanks for laughing again, um, for whatever reason you're doing it. 
Um, it's very good for my ego for some reason, so, 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 so keep going. But um, I, when, when, when I hear the word philosopher, I, I, I hear the phrase absurd clown. You know, like, and, and, and as I get older and like, do more of it, whatever the hell it is, like there, it, it sort of gets, it seems, seems more clown-like and more absurd to me. And I think that Socrates wasn't actually joking when he described himself as a clown. Like, like some people that are thinking, like, oh, he's just fucking with your head. Right? Like, oh, he's really, really clever and he's just pretending. Like, Columbo, he's just going to ask the most irritating possible question and get people to admit, you're, so, you're right! You know, I was, I'm the murderer, you know. Um, and like, like Socrates never had his own blog, right? He was always some irritating guy who commented on everyone else's blogs, just asking them for more and more and more clarification questions until their head exploded. That's basically what a Socratic dialogue is, right? And in the meantime, he's going, I'm a clown, right? But I think he's doing it in this kind of Stevie Smith way, like not waving but drowning. Like, I really am a clown. Like, I'm saying I am, but I actually am a clown here, you know. And that's because <coughs> the first two syllables of that word, philosophy, are the most important, right? Like, if it was just the wisdom, like, if, if, if I thought that I could just mainline the wisdom into people, that would be pretty good functional definition of being a wanker, you know? <laughs> but, but instead, the, it's, it's the love thing, isn't it? It's sort of like when you love somebody, you're willing to allow them to be a mysterious and, and ungraspable, you know, and, and, and sort of like the more you think about things, the more mysterious and ungraspable they get, hopefully, maybe, or maybe that's a bad thing. I have no idea anymore. I don't even know if it's good, what's happening to me, getting more and more vague. And this is, I'm, 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 in, I'm, I'm about to hit my 50th birthday. I'm just like, what the hell is this being alive thing? You know? And Aristotle says that you really get into it as a philosopher in your 50s. So, you know, watch out, you know. Well, I mean, I guess the key thing that, that this book proposes is, is, is obviously, first of all, a refusal of this division, which yeah. you've written about elsewhere, between us and other things, yeah, yeah. objects, organic and otherwise, and, of course, crucially, between us and nature. Mm. But in the first um, section of the book, the kind of introductory section, which is mm. titled Not Another Information Dump, mm-hmm. you lay out very clearly what you hinted at earlier, which is this idea that overwhelmed by the negative. Mm. We are, of course, paralysed. We enter a fetal position and don't want to move Mm. from it. And yet, of course, we're living within the unfolding crisis. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just take forward that idea of our relationship to it and our our experience of it, but at the same time we're reflexively aware of that. Totally. Um, There's like a silly personal comedy version thing that I could say, and then there's like a really important thing to say. So maybe I'll say the really important thing Um, first. Which is that you're not guilty. You're not guilty. No, you didn't do it. You're not. Please don't for a second think that you did anything like cause global warming, right? Like global warming is scaled to like the human species scale. Like when I when I start my car, I'm not causing global warming. It's statistically meaningless, right? Guilt is scaled to like individuals, and it's all about some. <laughs> or some sort of simulation of some kind of invisible white guy with a beard who wants to kill you. Mostly, you know. Um, and, and, and that's not really relevant to being responsible, right? Like, I think, you know, like, instead of trying to... You, you, like, we don't even need to force people to know that they cause global warming at all anymore. We just need to make people realise that if you can understand something, 
you're responsible for it. Like maybe even crocodiles cause global warming, but it, it doesn't matter because we can understand what it is. Therefore, we're responsible for it. Like you see somebody's drop their sh- drop their code. Therefore, you're responsible for it. You understand it, right? Um, and so this book is sort of about like how do we talk to each other in this situation, you know, without you know just remaining in this kind of self-triggering kind of shock mode that we're in. Because I don't know about you. But I'd actually get quite phobic looking at eco news in the paper because it's always delivered in this incredible sort of raw data seeming way, like five, 200,000, 20%. And then like two days later, there's another bunch of figures, right? And it's just shouting, right? And then you go into the editorial page and there's some kind of, you know, with full respect to the people who do this stuff. Like I'm not talking about anybody in this room, all lovely, perfect people who don't do this kind of thing. But apparently I've heard that there are sometimes editorials that sort of do this kind of intense Jeremiah type, everything's going wrong type of a thing. And I feel like it's really inhibiting, you know, in terms of like how to actually relate to, you know, coral and, 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 and polar bears or whatever. And actually, funnily enough, um, a lot of, of eco people would do a lot better right now, if, if, if you actually want to go to ecological awareness in social space more quickly, fighting racism and misogyny would be a very good idea. Like, I'm, I'm one person away now from David Attenborough, yeah? And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I've got this fantasy that I can persuade him to totally mode switch and do what he did with the plastic stuff about race, right? Like, let's do the descent of man. Let's actually do it, you know? It's a Darwin thing. I can do that, right? And, 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 and to be as passionate as, as, and, and as intense as that about that issue. Because I think that actually dissolves that barrier much, much better than simply insisting, insisting, insisting on, on, on coral or global warming or whatever in the manner of someone who's going, don't you realise your mum just died, you stupid moron? You know, like, that's never going to work, is it? You know, and I feel like the way that we've been talking has hoovered up enough people. Like, I got hoovered up by the religious way of talking because I'm a bit of a religious maniac and I'm a bit of a guilt specialist, so I love, a bit, I love being guilty. You know, but, like, for everyone else who's not a freak, like, how to actually, like, live this data, you know, because, because it's real and, 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 and we are living it now. It's just in a really, really not nice way, you know. And so that's the, that was the motivation for, for, for writing it, for sure. You know? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting and, of course, important that you mention racism and misogyny because the, the enforcing of difference and otherness in right. those ways of engagement are, of course, yeah. also what we do in our kind of ecological underpinning. Yeah. And this brings us to the cover of the book in a very serious way, I think, because we were yeah. comparing this earlier, uh, earlier on to a... Pelican book cover um, of a book by Buckminster Fuller, which was an analog yeah. drawing, we could say. Yeah. Um, and this is a, a pixelation mm. of an image that might or might not ever be realized for us, for our mm. uh, more recognizable sight. But mm-hmm. the crucial thing about this, it seems to me, in relation to the project, is that you could think of the pixelation as the kind of subatomic level of the image. Mm-hmm. And at that level, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all the same thing. We're all the same mm-hmm. matter outside mm-hmm. of division and difference. And, mm-hmm. from, and from this level... Your book, in a way, mm. proposes, without ever saying what I've just mm. said, yeah. that we can rebuild this relationship right. through an acknowledgement of, of all things yeah. coexisting. Yeah, I, I love this cover. It's like sort of Paul Clay, right? But also it's sort of like some kind of censored image. Like, what's, what, what is that really? But also it's like 
something that's so so <coughs> small that you can't really render it properly, or it's so so big and you're, or you're so far away that you can't really render it properly, right? And so it's got this real kind of confusion of scales, and that's mainly what ecological awareness is, right? It's sort of like, oh my God, there's like a million different scales on which stuff is happening. And there's no one scale to rule them all. It's like, like now is 7 p.m., you know, 21st century Anthropocene, time of humans on Earth, time of the solar system. There's so many different types of now happening right now. And they don't coincide, not in that nice way that you can kind of kid yourself with when you look at the scale tool online, like in the basement of the Science Museum where I live in Houston, there's this scale tool where you can go from like the Planck length, you know, which is the smallest, to the universe level super smoothly with this joystick. So, oh, the mastery, the skill, I'm going there. But actually, of course, these different scales have totally different realities. And there's an amazing sort of ontological jump, actually, that happens between these different scales. And that's what's awkward and funny about ecological awareness. Because on the one hand, you're so not causing global warming. On the other hand, as part of this thing, hyper-object, whatever, called the human species, you sort of are, right? And, and, and that's really odd. Just that bit is really confusing, you know. Um, my brother's got schizophrenia, and there's one idea about why that could be the case. And, and, and like, how come people with schizophrenia smoke a lot of cigarettes, you know, apart from the fact that it's incredibly pleasurable? Um, there's a receptor in your brain called alpha-7, and it actually maybe helps you to distinguish between foreground and background, you know? And so when you smoke lots of cigarettes, you kind of reboot that receptor in a way that helps you to do that, right? And maybe schizophrenia could be like you're hearing voices coming out of the radi radiator or the lighting system, right? So, you know, in a world where there's no background anymore because we suddenly realize we're part of... Part of nature isn't nice, right? It's sort of like all of a sudden there's no background. Therefore, there's no foreground. Therefore, sort of socially, like collectively, we're going through some kind of psychotic experience, dot, 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 fascist reaction to that psychotic experience, right? Like it's not just a reaction to, to neoliberalism. It's a reaction to the sort of paper-thin biosphere that that kind of economic structure has created, right? And so... How do you help people to go through a sort of cognitive or, or, or feeling type space that's actually almost like psychotic? You know, it's really important how we talk to ourselves about this. And I think that like ye ye yelling at each other is not that great to use a technical term. No. Like I say, that he's he's in charge. Does anyone he wants a trip? I'll just walk down the aisle with a little just tray. And open it and send it yeah. off. Actually, yeah, I'll, I'll pass it because I don't want these. But please don't rustle too lovely. much because this event is being recorded. Well, you um, can rustle a bit because we're near to Russell Square. Oh, very good, yeah. maestro of language. Um, Even I know that, and I and I live in Houston. So. <laughs> um, what you've been saying, really, is what the, what the book's promotional material also says, yeah. which is this is not you know, a handbook for a slightly revised environmental um, kind of practice, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's about a perceptual shift. And if we're right. experiencing this reality, we're inside it, but we're also aware of that fact, yeah. then what we're really doing, of course, is challenging and, and engaging and unpicking and rewiring yeah. our perceptual awareness of our own existence yeah. in relation to other things. 
And yet, when that, if you know, if you take that as the project and the kind of the pitch that you make, mm. then you of course reveal to us that other things, all all other things, whether it's animals, other people, or light switches, mm. Mm. are fundamentally unknowable. Mm. They can reveal themselves to us in different ways. We can turn a light switch on. We can lick the light switch. Oh, yeah. We can hear the light switch in a, in a talk show, hobby. as you say. Yeah. But we can never know the light switch fully. Mm. So we're both aware of our kind of com- commonality, if you like, and at the same yeah. time also aware of this idea of v- different levels of presence. Yes, exactly. Could you talk a little bit about these, these kind of two switches of presence? Yes. Well, the thing is that, um, you know, <coughs> we, we're surrounded by data, right? And this data is more or less accurate. And when I say data, I don't just mean like measurement of length and like velocity and all that data. Data just means stuff that's given, right? Like, the sound of the air conditioning system or the, the way the lights are affecting your eyes or like the, 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 the association that's happening in your mind. All that stuff is data, <coughs> yeah? And there's this, I, I think personally, there's this funny gap between data and things, you know? And like modern science is all about how respecting this gap, like, like actual scientists never actually want to talk about things. They're sort of like sworn off that. Right, what they're talking about is patterns and data, yeah. And so, one of the problems with how we like use these factoids about ecology is that it's as if they are unmediated in some way, and they're super, super highly mediated facts. And like, I don't know about you, but when the poor scientist gets behind the desk at the IPCC and starts doing the shtick, it's incredibly difficult to watch because they are engaged necessarily in a belief competition with someone in the audience or someone's in the audience, right? Um, and they don't know that they are, really. They think they're talking facts, but really they're talking in kind of belief mode, you see, because the trouble is that scientists, like in their professional world, also coincide sometimes with sort of ideas about what science could be, right? And that's really, like, different, you know? And so... Instead of like waiting for those people to tell us the the data, like how to actually start living our own data about it, you know, and um, sort of um, also how to have a conversation about belief. Like just recently, my my son Simon was in the playground. Houston's actually an awesome town, but it might have a couple of people who are a bit religious in it, and. <laughs> Um, some of these people are always trying to get the A from God. You know, so I'm on B plus right now. So how do I get an A minus for this guy? Um, and one of these guys was talking to Simon. who's like, do you believe in God? And Simon was like, no, I don't actually. And the guy was like, well, then you're evil and I can't play with you. you know? And so I said, Simon, you know, next time someone asks you that, what you've really got to do is like, why not say, before I answer the question, what do you think believe means? <laughs> Right, like, 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 believe could mean, you know, like, believe, like, or, or believe could mean, like, I'm tr- trusting, you know, like, clearly this believing in God and therefore your evil thing is this kind of gripping thing, right? And I keep saying this phrase to myself that the how is the what, the how is the what, right? I probably stole it from Fun, Fun Boy Three, I think, I think may, maybe, um, <laughs> in the early eighties. It's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. You know, like, and, you know, I'm, one, 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 one of my friends says really rude swear words in a way that's incredibly gentle and beautiful. 
right? I couldn't do that myself, you know. And so the how is not an optional extra. It's actually crucially it, right? And, like, we keep forgetting that in terms of eco-world. Everything else, we know this to be true, right? But, like, in, in, in eco-world, it's as if we act like it's not true and we sort of go, well, you know, this is reality now, actual reality, and I don't have to have any kind of mediation of it, right? And, like, that's obviously going to create all kinds of, in the end, quite violent situations and is very disempowering. And so how to allow people to sort of chew ecological data in a way that's a bit a bit nicer, you know? Um, and um, the thing is that not necessarily thinking, you know, and, 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 and here is, I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to be anti-intellectual, you know. I, I, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado, and there was a great anti-intellectualism in that town. And my sense of it was that usually the most anti-intellectual people were the most intellectual people. It's like a hobby of scholars to be very down on what they do, you know. Um, so I'm not saying that, but I, what I am saying is that thinking isn't the only access mode, and it's not necessarily the, the, the right access mode or the best access mode or the top access mode, because everything's equally rubbish at accessing, right? Like, thinking about the glass gives you a glass thought, right? And then drinking from the glass gives you a glass drink. And then if for some reason the glass was intelligent and went on Oprah and could speak... Um, what the glass would say about itself would be glass autobiography. It wouldn't be the glass. You'd never get that. Not even the glass would give you the glass, right? And so there's this sort of quality of, you know, reality um, isn't necessarily like the real. It's that there's this kind of gap between the two. And 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 what kind of reality do we do we want? You know, he said in a kind of new age, slightly left wing way, <laughs> not this one. I think, probably. Well, that strangeness that you talk about with the glass and this kind of idea of the sort of ungraspable real is caught very much in in your use of language itself. You know, you mentioned Funboy 3 just now, right? Ah. But, of course, you know, many people in the audience will recognise a reference here in the title of Chapter 1, and you may find yourself Hmm. living in an age of mass extinction. That is the title of the first chapter of the book. The last chapter of the book... (laughs) remember the title is Being Ecological, is a brief history of ecological thought. And so that inversion mm. of approach, in a way, is yes. core to what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And the strangeness of this experience that we're living through, yeah. of being caught up in this ecological moment, yeah. being aware of that fact, being fetal and paranoid and panicking and everything mm. else, is, in a way, for you, also part of the, the way through and potentially out into this other yeah. place. I think my one skill in life for some reason, is to get people over the denial speed bump or the, like, the shock speed bump of this thing, whatever this is, you know, because this is re- we're talking about kind of grief processing here. There's so much that's so, so wrong, um, and it's very, very shocking, and you can't really stay shocked for too long because, unfortunately, like, the real, like, like, like what is global warming actually? It's mass extinction, you know, like, climate change is actually global warming, and, and, and global warming is actually, like, mass extinction. Like, it's happening now in this horribly imperceptible way. It's like, e- even hard for scientists to discern mass extinction. You've got to look for these little tiny traces. It's really odd, isn't it? Because, like, supposedly it's this huge, giant thing, but precisely because it's so big, you can only see little tiny dots of it that are very, very, like, distributed at any one point. 
And so even scientists have a trouble think, uh, thinking this thing, you know, and, and sort of how to, um, you know, how, how to operate, given that we're responsible for this, you know, because um, polar bears didn't do it, we, we did it, you know, and um, how to get into the right kind of, not just frame of mind, but kind of um, style, you know, culturally and socially, to, to, to sort of deal with this, you know, and, and, and sort of like that's my sort of handy hints of me how to do it. Um, maybe the book starts in an incredibly beardy, strokey, sort of very, very contemplative way and gradually gets hotter and hotter and hotter until by the end you're like, ah, you know, is it that, 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 that's been some people who've read it um, have had that experience, mm. you know, so that actually when you get to that final chapter it's very intense, mm. you know, but I very much wanted people not to be, you know, screamed at by sort of the, by, <coughs> by this kind of, like, like when you text somebody and you use capitals, it's very much how we talk to each other about, about these things, you know. Thank you, Tim. We're going to go very, very shortly to the audience. But before we do, I just want to kind of zoom in on the actual nature of the book itself, which ah. is, a, you know, a book of language. Mm. And your language is very fluid and supple and open. And when mm. you were in Porto, you were collaborating with the artist, filmmaker Ben Rivers, who I'm delighted mm. is in the audience tonight. And that idea of openness and connectivity mm. is central to how you, you think about what language can do. You know, yeah. you draw from ideas of Buddhism, you draw from the kind of rhythms of dance music, from talking heads, as I hinted at in the chapter one title. Chapter two is called, And the Leg Bones Connected to the Toxic Waste Dump Bone. Mm. <laughs> Which, of course, undeniably um, implicates us in this unfolding scenario that we find mm. ourselves in. Chapter three is called Tuning. And before mm. we go to the audience, in light of the ideas of language that I've suggested, mm. I wonder if you could think out loud for us about this idea of oh. attunement. Yes. And also how then you would communicate that idea through the, la- the kind of the style of language yeah. that you've created. So, like... One of the things that gets asked me all the time is, what are we supposed to do? And I'm, I'm, like, I'm like the least qualified person to give that answer because I'm in kind of theory, philosophy world, you know. And you can give a really flip answer if you're in that world. You say, oh, well, reflection is a form of action and blah, 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 blah. Think about the notion of praxis and blah, 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 blah. And sort of let yourself off the hook, right? And like I say, you know, the, there are some very obvious ideas about how to make this work, like just stop burning carbon and, you know, fight racism, join Black Lives Matter and fight misogyny. It's incredibly practical. Um, um, and then, like, um, sort of how that incredibly practical thing actually gets a little bit confused in philosophy world. Because in philosophy world... There's an idea of what do means, which is incredibly powerfully opposite to, like, whatever the other one is, suffer or endure or passive or whatever that is, right? And so I feel like um, it might be important to kind of recalibrate what we think about that and sort of start thinking about something else instead. And so my idea is, like, um, attunement, tuning, right? Like... Music is based on listening, right? Like when you play music, you're listening to the other people in the band, you're listening to the music that you're playing, you're listening to your lineage and your musical heritage, and you're listening to your instrument, actually, and you're listening to yourself, right? And in the same way, like, speaking is based on on listening, right? And somehow, um, when you really think about listening, 
you realize that you know there are simply degrees of like openness to different types of of being it's a little bit like what one of my very favorite people ever Jacques Derrida um, said about narcissism you know you know the trouble with the current president of the USA whose name I will never say hopefully is that he is not narcissistic enough actually because don't kill me yet because like um, I'm paid to say stupid, rude things in public. I'm really sorry. But, like, in a way, he's got a disordered narcissism. You know? and, and what Derrida argues is that there should be, like, just more and more extended versions of it. Like, like narcissism is why you can eat, right? Like, it's why you can, like, not die when you cross the road. Right? Like, it, it's quite nice. It's quite a nice thing, you know. Um, if, if, if you were doing yoga, it would be some kind of nice, smooth prana flow that doesn't have any blockages to it would be like the ideal, right? Um, and what we're talking about in the current American situation is a kind of twisted, disordered version, right? And so somehow how to extend that to other beings rather than delete, you know? Um, and again, it's sort of like underneath this idea of do being really different from like experience or feel or like passive versus active or whatever, is this notion of, of, of sort of tu- tuning, you know, listening, attending to, you know. Um, and it's just sort of, it's, it's, it's not everything. Like, I can't write social policy, and there's so many amazing ideas about how to fix global warming. You know, that, that's not my job, you know. But sort of my job is like, in the meantime, how is that being felt and lived and, 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 and presented, you know, and, and, and how are we treating each other when we, when we do that, you know? Wonderful. Thank you. On that note, on that very uh, warm and positive and, and uh, all-embracing note, please let's hear your thoughts, responses, challenges, uh, provocations, of course. Uh, David is there with the uh, ever-faithful roving Mike. Uh, the two of them will be wandering the aisles and colonnades of the uh, establishment waiting to hear from you. Please do share your thoughts on these very important issues. Can I just say one thing? It's ever so lovely to see everyone. I mean, there are some people in this crowd who are some of the most lovely, important people in my entire life in this crowd. And I'm so touched to have been invited to do this. And I can't believe Penguin asked me to do this book. It's incredible. You know, and, and, and I feel very, very touched about being here. I'm sorry if I come across a bit yeah. funny for the back. <laughs> Gratitude all round. Um, any thoughts from any uh, possible position or di- direction about these issues? Challenges to it? The challenges of being ecological, of course, trying to be ecological, refusing to be ecological. We can go straight to the competition. You've got a chroma key phone. That is a very old phone. I did not recommend this. This is not one of those retro phones um, wanting to go back to the old glory days of the golden age before everything else. This is actually one of the old bad so phones. Gene, Gene, like, like if I was, you know, if this was a film, I could be like this. You could put anything here. It's almost like a kind of a Star Trek style. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yes, please. We'll take you and then we'll go to... Yeah, thank you. Hello. We've, Hi. We've, um, we've latched onto global warming so much as a kind of... as a thing. Um, mm. My personal view is that it's, in a sense, there's, there's another thing going on which is even mm. more significant, which is the, the extinction. Yes. And, it's, and that, what underpins that is the yeah. loss of habitat. Yes. Um, and I'm just wondering what... I, I, I couldn't thoughts. agree more. Yeah. You know, if, if, you. if you're going to cut to the chase, what we're really talking about here is mass extinction. Now, 
the last time that happened, the last ma- there, there, there's been five so far on Earth, right? The last one was the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs. The previous one to that was called the End Permian Extinction, and it was basically wiped out all but four percent of life. It was much worse than the asteroid, and it was a global warming one because it was to do with an enormous methane bubble that exploded, right? And so it's a bit scary that this is a global warming one. And so, funnily enough, the funny thing is, it's like we're sitting in this room having this conversation, yet and at the same time, we are this giant asteroid hurtling towards Earth at thirty thousand miles an hour, you know. And 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 again, it's that weird jump between being able to understand things and hear things and eat <coughs> cornflakes and share crisps and things, and like being that, you know. And sort of just how to deal with that aspect, you know. I I, I find it incredibly difficult to think about. I, I I'm going to get more more and more upset if I actually carry on talking about it. I sort of feel myself going a little bit when I when I do. And so like I I, I just use my own inner space as a way to like that's all I've got to go on. Like the chemicals in here, you know, the experiential chemicals, you know, how to sort of help people because I find that fact incredibly shocking. You know. Well, thank you. Before we go to the next question, you make—I mean—you make exactly that point about the move to, ma- to, you know, to the to in terminology yeah. to mass extinction, global warming, climate change are completely inadequate yeah. to what we're experiencing. So it comes back to this idea of language and the kind of language that we need yes. between each other, and of course, and as as forms of proposal. Do you know what? Laurie uh, Anderson got me onto this. Um, She—we're making friends with each other right now, and she's got this thing where she noticed that. Um, the OED, children's OED, is about to delete all these words. Why? Like, why would a dictionary delete words? I mean, like, why would the OED delete words? Like, the beauty of the OED is the beauty of the English language. This is just a big pile of everybody else's stuff. It's not a language at all, right? Like, that's why I'm a linguistic cripple, because there's no real structure to it, right? Um, and they're deleting, they're thinking of getting rid of words like, you know, hedgerow, wren, you know, like words like that, because they think kids don't really identify. That, that, that's exactly why to have those words. Right? Like when I was on the library committee at University of California, the library in the audit that was just done was in a paragraph about recycling and radioactive materials. And um, it said something like, well, you know, we should be a bit careful about the library stuff, just like we are about the radioactive materials. They didn't realize it was a funny joke, right? And we wrote this response, and I was like, look, the point about libraries is that actually they, 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 they have to have stuff in that no one knows, right? Like, otherwise it's called Amazon.com, right? Um, the, 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 the whole idea is that they're, like, holding things so that other people can, like, find out about them. Like, how come the dictionary's deleting those words? It's incredibly important, you know, like, words that we may not use, but it's nice to know that they're there. You know, no, the lost words of of the ecological, which yeah. writers have have challenged absolutely. Yeah, um, thank you. Let's go to the yeah. Can we come to you in a second? Let's go. No, you, you, Matt, you. Yeah, yeah. Ah, and well, yeah. Thank you. It's a little bit off topic. It was when we had no questions, but we suddenly have loads. And um, I really just wanted to hear Tim talk more about music, because ah. um, you're clearly obsessed, yeah. and it yeah. finds its way into your yeah. writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there any musicians, any bands or artists who yes. have provoked you and sort of challenged you and inspired you, for want of a better word, in mm. your writing, in your ideas? Yeah. 
Um, Thank you. There are so many. I mean, it, it, it's, I'm, it's hard for me to say one particular band or one particular genre because I'm, I like so much that I like, like little bits of things, it seems to me. You know, it's very hard to totalize it because there's so much of it. You know, one of the lovely things about where I'm staying right now is that I'm round the corner from heaven. You know, I don't know if you realize that exists in the world, but it's actually like Villiers Street, Charing Cross, you know, where I spent my misspent youth. You know, and most of what I know in here about ecological awareness is actually coming from Fabio and Groove Rider in like, circa 1991 <coughs> in this club where drum and bass was invented. Right? And drum and bass being the, the way in which southeast London people, a little bit pretty much, like, did art you know, in, the, in, in, in the early to mid-90s. You know? And um, when people from California asked me where I lived, I say I, I, lived, I used to live on the cover of Animals. Well, it's roughly geographically close enough. It's got this almost the same train line, and it's got my favourite building, which is Battersea Power. So I'm talking about Pink Floyd's album Animals, right? And it's got that Battersea Power Station, you know. Um, both my parents are musicians. Both my brothers are musicians. I'm I'm a musician, rubbish, rubbish musician, you know. Um, but I am aware that language has got this kind of music dimension to it, and I feel like one of the things I think I'm doing is a little bit performance art, like. I'm taking ideas and sentences and sort of bending them into pretzels and then something else happens that's a little bit more like this music thing, you know, but I try not to touch that live rail myself because I get so moved by it that I go immediately to the outer moons of Jupiter and then I'm no use to anyone, you know. Um, And so it's probably better for everyone in this room for all kinds of reasons that I'm writing sentences rather than playing notes, you know. Um, but yeah, like anything, like I'm, 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 I'm horribly vulgarly, like, like it, interested in everything, uh, almost music wise, you know. Thank you very much. We'll come here and then can I just see if they were, yeah, yeah great. Thank you. I just wanted to take it back a little bit to mm. the question around extinction, which is a place that I spend a lot of time thinking about yeah, as yeah. well. And this notion of biodiversity and our relational element, too. Mm. So, so far we've had more of a human-centric perspective about how we feel and think about ourselves with relationship to this other space. Right on. But how do we think about that with regard to all of these species that are going extinct that we aren't even aware of yet? And do you have any ideas about that gap and how we bridge that? Yeah. Well, thank you. So that's lovely, actually, because... um, if, 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 if drinking something or licking it or ignoring it or, or talking about it is as good as thinking about it, that means that what, what, what snails do to this glass is just as valid as what I do thinking about it. And if you've got five hours, I can bore you to death with like some perfect like logical proof of this thing. But luckily, you just have to believe me for a minute. <laughs> but like, yeah. Um, but um, I feel like um, one of the things that it's like a habitual pattern that mostly sort of post-Neolithic society people, a.k.a. us, like on that particular timescale, we're basically from Mesopotamia. This is like Mesopotamia 9.0 that, that we're living in right now. And that's not a primitivistic statement. That's just a historical statement at a massive, like, temporal scale, right? And, and, and that kind of social structure has to do with kind of severing our connection between... Um, human and non-human, but it's not possible, right? Because 
of course, you know, without your bacterial microbiome and so on and so on, and there's all this kind of non-human DNA inside me and furthermore, totally non-Tim stuff inside me, right? And I feel like maybe, like, my way of thinking about it is instead of pushing people to look over there at the Pacific species, turn the camera sort of this way to look over here at this being here and, like, who is that and what is that, right? And my sense of who this is is, like, um, there's much less of it than I might have liked to have thought a while ago. It's not that I don't exist completely. It's that I'm, like, open. You know, like, there's nothing in particular in here that's got this kind of intel inside. This is a Tim Morton bracelet. This is a Tim Morton cell. This is a Tim Morton sentence. This is a Tim Morton, like, pair of pants, right? Like, that doesn't happen, right? And so, like, Tim can be Tim because there's all this other stuff, right? And so there's a lot less of Tim, you know. When you get married in America the tax code treats you as one and a half people. So it's sort of as if you've become three quarters of who you were, which is sort of weirdly comically correct, right? And, and, but, but in another way, just like without thinking about the marriage thing, quite sort of accurate. Like, and so I think if I could maybe shrink my idea of who I am down a little bit, by definition I'm allowing in lots of other beings, you know, on a very deep level supporting me. You know? And this idea... Um, which I talk about quite a lot in there, is like a version of what Shelley says. You know this poem called The Mask of Anarchy? Yeah, like Gandhi and King's favourite poem, right? It's, it's this non-violent resistance poem. And the last line, you know, ye are many, they are few, right? Well, that's not just politically true, and it's not just like historically happening to be the case, right? And it's not just a good idea. It's that it's like it's ontologically correct, right? Like on, ontologically meaning having to do with how things are, right? Having to do with the way things exist, right? And so I think that's lovely, right? Like the fact that there's much less of me, that means there's so much more wiggle room and so much more breathing room. And these beings that I've, that culture and ideology, whatever, have been excluding are still here, right? Like we're sitting on chairs right now. They're non-human beings. Like there's all these non-human beings in social space already, right? Because social space was never completely human in the first place, you know? And so it's just a very, very slight perspective shift, actually. It's not even intense. And so, like, instead of, like, pushing people towards other life forms, look, look, just, like, look at that one. It's more efficient, maybe. I don't like efficiency. Why did I say that? Yeah. Yeah. It's more exciting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we had, yes, please, here. here. Thanks for this. Um, so... Uh, you said earlier that you weren't really interested in giving particular prescriptions mm. of what to do, mm-hmm. but you did also say join Black Lives Matter I and did. get rid of misogyny. Yes, I, I know. I'm and a total hypocrite. And there, seems, there seems to be something maybe interesting around mm. what this style is that mm. you're talking about in terms of attunement in a yes. kind of ecological way that would also bring with it other kinds of political action. Yes. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. Maybe this relates to your idea of subsendence? Yes, or? it does. That's my fancy word for what I was just saying, which is basically that there's so Thank much you. more in a thing than there is of that thing. Like, like, like I just said that about myself, right? But it's also true about the weather, right? Like, obviously, the weather is a symptom of global warming. Like, this whole conversation about, was the hurricane caused by global warming or not? It's just, it's obviously, because global warming is this higher-level thing that's just causing everything right now. Um, but what's interesting about the weather is that it isn't just a global warming symptom. It's also this lovely, 
bath for these toads outside my house, right? Houston's got lots of toads in it. And it, it, it it's this weird sensation on my skin. It's all these other things than just being a symptom of that. The point being that some things in our world, like, for example, the dreaded neoliberalism or global warming, are, on, are, are physically enormous because they cover a lot of Earth's surface, but ontologically they're tiny. Tiny, 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 because there's only one of them, and there's so much more of everything else, including us. We really do have the controls. You know, like, my idea is tr tr try to empower people, and, like, so we've been stuck in tragedy mode about this, but the trouble with tragedy mode is that it's like agricultural society's way of explaining itself to itself. It's, it's like a little bit of religion mode, right? Now, tragedy is about somebody extricating themselves from their fate only to find that the extrication process has doubled down on that fate thing. And when you watch it, it's as if you're not that person. Oh, look at that poor twisted person over there doubling down on his or her fate. That's, that's awful. You know, it's, it, it, it's a kind of religious ritual, actually. It's the, it's the Athens city Dionysia religious ritual thing, right? Now, when you see one person doing that, it's called a tragedy, right? But when you see lots and lots of people doing it, it's called Faulty Towers, <laughs> right? And so sort of like how to get from tragedy mode into weird kind of comedy mode, you know, that's my, that's my mission. Because I think comedy is deeper than tragedy. Like comedy is almost like allowing so many different types of emotional beings to exist, not just laughter. But like, <coughs> all, you know, like look at a late Shakespeare play. It's got all these different emotions in it, right? Um, tragedy, there's only maybe one or two, right? And so functionally, it's sort of like a little bit like allowing other entities to exist, you know, although these entities are experiential entities rather than like fish or coral or whatever, but it's a great model. And, and, and my friend Kim Stanley Robinson writes comedy prose about global warming, which is the, the best, you know, because it's sort of like not like how to deny the horror, but actually like how to have a kind of dis <coughs> disco in the, in the midst of it. You know, I, I, I really, I'm very strong about this. I, I refuse to die. Or if I'm going to die, I'm going to wear amazing clothes. <laughs> Thank you. We'll come to the front here if we could. Interestingly, Mastermind have now uh, rejected Faulty oh. Towers as um, a specialist subject because they have run out of questions wow. about Faulty Towers. Wow. Last year, 32 wow. contestants proposed it as their specialist no. subject. We don't want to run out of questions. We have one more here. Do think about a couple more. Um, yes, please. Yeah, thanks. Um, I like the emotional, like the kind, just the general discourse of emotion. And I know you talked about narcissism being, mm. there's a healthy narcissism, there's a twisted and disordered version of narcissism, but also we've been speaking like in the language of grief. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting in those terms because we can think of people like um, Rose in Wild Dog Dreaming talks mm. about a version of cultural grief, which means it's mm. abusive. It means to turn your face away. Like you can't look in mm. the face of someone who's dying. Mm. And Tom Van Doren talks about the grief, the kind yes. of species grief that can be manipulated in really problematic forms of future land management. Right. So I wondered if I could ask you about that question of grief, because I think in mm. your work, there's a really good model of pragmatic grief, like mm. how, how we can practice, how we should be practicing that grief. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Wow. Okay. Um, I hope my answer does like slight justice to that question. So, okay. So living the last 25 years of my life with a little brother who, who went crazy is like this incredibly slow burning grief process that I've been through for like years and years and years and years. And I'm 
sure my mum would agree, she's in the audience. Um, and, um, like, how to, how you chew it and how you deal with it and, like, what it is, it, it sort of transmogrifies itself all the time, you know. And, um, I know that, um, once upon a time, Sabolfi Somme came to my house. She's a shaman from West Africa, right? And in her culture, all they do all the time is grief rituals. That's all they do. Their whole society, from, from a sort of go-go point of view, is totally gummed up because all they do is, like, working through various different types of grief. But, of course, they're incredibly happy and always laughing and, like, obviously also crying, you know, but, and, and, and they're very, very together and they're, they're like, very advanced people. You know, and so sort of how that experience became a model for me when 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 Sabonfu showed up. You know, she she didn't have kids, but she was the in her village. She was the person who looked after everybody else's baby. So she took little Claire, who was like one and a half at the time, round the garden, making this very loud noise in her ear that was very disconcerting sounding, but it was totally, totally for some reason chilling for this for this little girl you know and i just thought wow that's incredible skill like how to deal with this because small people are grief all the time right in a way like the screaming you know the the just just like the raw pain of being having of, 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 of having been born you know and so sort of like um like you know like maybe i, I don't know because i'm not a bottle of highland spring but like in a way, this bottle is a story about all the stuff that happened to some plastic, right? Like it got molded and grooved and made into this shape. In other words, it's like this is a, like a living sort of trauma in bottle shape, right? Like, like, like the appearance, how things appear kind of is trauma, right? Like everywhere, yeah? And so since that's the case, how to just sort of deal, deal with that sounds really like not very perfect, does it, when it comes out of my lips. But, but, but that's very nice for you to say that it's a practical, you know, because I really do want to, like, I want to I, I feel like there's a way to, like, fold the laundry of the grief, you know. Does anybody want their laundry folded? I'm really, really good at it. I'm better at it than writing, honestly, seriously. <laughs> Give me the laundry. <laughs> very good at the laundry. It's the same as writing. Thank you very much. Yes, we'll take a question here and then a question there, and then we'll probably uh, move uh, Just yet yeah, the, the the woman there, yeah, just straight ahead of you, David. Thank you. Yeah, I was um, curious about your mm. um, engagement with the art world. Mm. Um, I I was an art writer, mm. and when I started doing mm. it, I've been involved in a lot of philosophy, and I found mm. like a way of thinking about things that I'd not discovered before and then when I started reading your work and some other people who are maybe in a similar kind of area I was like oh these guys are explaining to me the kind of things that that I and some other people I knew were doing and, and never really understood in that way so I'm just w- wondering whether you took an influence from the art world or whether there was just a confluence yeah. maybe if you could just speak a bit about yes that. absolutely thank you um I do lots of different types of work with lots of different types of artists and I see my role as absolutely definitely not mansplaining you know, in a way, like, like, like I just wrote to Laurie Anderson, I said, look, if we're going to have a, do a thing, you know, about this, this ecology, about this ecology thing that we're interested in, just realize that my job isn't going to be mansplaining Laurie Anderson, right? But you can Laurie-splain Tim 
anytime you want, right? Because from my point of view, the art is sort of in front of the philosophy, right? It's sort of because art is the future. You know, it sounds a bit corny, but sort of like the unknowable, ungraspable, what does this really mean quality of art is the future. It's not just in the future or from the future. That is the future, right? That, that aspect of things, because time is nowhere else than in like phones and chairs and you and rings and glasses and shells and works of art, right? And so very, very explicitly, usually <coughs> the art is teaching me how to think about stuff, right? And that's why I like to expose myself to it, because it sort of transmogrifies my way of, my, my way of thinking about things, you know? And, and, and again, it's sort of like, that's an obvious thing to say, but there's an incredibly deep reason for it, which is that we allow art, we allow art in our culture to be that thing that everything else is already anyway, which is this kind of gate from the future, you know, from which, like, like, for example, my own stuff. No one else reads my books this way, but I read my books as a kind of weird self-help from the future, like future Tim, giving Tim now advice, right? Because obviously the ideas are a little bit unconscious, and so I don't know what they are yet, so therefore they're the future of me. So, like, much more mature than me is, 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 is like, stuff in here. So this, for me, is like a self-help thing. You know, don't ask, like, what that is, because it's really dumb. But you, is that roughly it? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't it. Good answer, good yeah. answer. Thank, really. thank you very much. Yeah. Um, um, and following right along, the gentleman just behind, yep, there we are, and we'll take this as the last question, for now at least, anyway. Thank you, thank you both. Um, Tim, you talked about the, the problem of the glass and not being able to get at what the glass is about, but if we ourselves are many, mm. is there something that the glass is about that isn't about all of the silica that's inside it and all of the, you know, all of the many mm. things that it already is? Mm. Is the kind of fetishization of a particular thing in itself a, a kind of a, a red herring? Mm. Okay, Thank so um, let's talk about thing. Like, like when I hear the word thing, I think of a liquid rather than a solid. Like often when people hear this word thing or object, what they visualize is a, some, something that's really solid, that's graspable and like touchable and it has a texture. But, but, but actually, like the, for me, the, the right analogy is a, is a liquid. You know, like you can't actually hold it. You can't sort of put your hands in it and like grip it. It's always slipping through your grasp, you know. And so let's get clear, first of all, that when I say thing, I don't mean prefabricated solid thing that you can point to, right? Because that's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to say, right? I'm, what, what, what I'm saying is like strange liquid from the future that you intrinsically can't understand, you know. Um, and so um, I think that's not fetishization because fetishization would be reducing a thing to to some entity probably some human beings probably some social construct kind of way of using it or accessing it or exploiting it in other words or or, or commodifying it or something like that right and so um then there desperately needs to be a way of talking about entities that aren't me you know um that aren't um, just with reference to my own access of them, right? Because it's quite clear that they have their own autonomous sort of reality from their own side. I mean, 
if it's a little too hard to accept, just like apply it to life forms because we're in the ecology world right now. You don't have to apply it to like spoons or whatever. That's just like for nutters, you know. So you, so, so you don't have to go that far. That was where I really screwed up on this interview on Newsnight. Maybe that's why they didn't play it yet. But <laughs> Kirsty Wark was like, are you really suggesting that stones are alive? And I'm like, well, you don't have to believe everything that Crazy Tim says. Because I believe in modal truth, like things can be 50% true, 75% true. You can believe 75% of what Tim says, and he's totally fine with that. <laughs> That's not a regular Newsnight position, though, is it? No, <laughs> not really. Not really. Not in the, the six minutes they have to investigate something in depth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for that provocative question, mm. leaving us open, I think, um, to the future. Um, which, of course, involves you pur- purchasing, first of all, the many books on display. Other books, of course, are available in the spirit of BBC impartiality, not just Tim's books. You can buy any book in the shop while the book is, bookshop is open. But we encourage you, while Tim is here, to engage with this particular table and obviously then with Tim as you move towards Hold him. On. Does anyone have a massive Sharpie? I, li- I, li- I like nice big felt. Uh, we have a shop full of Sharpies. A shop right. full of Sharpies, and that's not just the highly intelligent audience. <laughs> but before we get to the sales pitch, we have the, it's, the, it's time for the competition. So the competition has been constructed, perfectly formed, I hope, around Tim's, of course, great uh, project of work. Just to remind you, of course, that we are launching this book. Um, if you don't trust me on its incredible readability and relevance, I would say um, that in preparing for this event, um, I was lucky to go to the Cezanne Portrait Show, mm. the National Portrait Gallery yesterday. Wonderful show in which reading Tim's work uh, led me to think that actually all of Cezanne's portraits are actually portraits of landscape of mm. Mont Saint-Victoire, which he has coded directly mm. into Madame Cezanne's uh, sewing fabrics, his own forehead in the first self-portrait wow. that you see. Yeah. Um, the, the blur between person yeah. and landscape is, is, um, is explicit That's in Cezanne. Cool. So yeah. it's an important book that changes how you think, which is, of course, you know, useful. But as, um, as I said, don't trust me on it. Uh, Björk, of course, uh, some of you will have heard of her, says, I've been reading Tim's books for a while, and I like them a lot. Um, <laughs> So I think that's, that's good enough for me. Um, anyway, competition time. So we've got three prizes. Now, there are three because Tim works a lot around the ideas of object-oriented ontology. Uh, triple O, um, uh, as it's known to those who know it. So there are three pr- uh, prizes here, for one for each of the O's. Now, in here are objects which, of course, by their definition, as Tim has explained very well so far, are inherently ungraspable and unknowable. Therefore, you won't know what they are uh, until you've won them. Um, and they, they move um, almost effortlessly from the, the state of things that we're in mm. through the current situation towards a kind of possibility in the future. And there are three questions attached to these prizes. Mm. And they also move through time. So the first question relating to the, the object in this bag. These bags, I should say, come from Armenia, which is a place, of course, that many people have no idea of the location of, but it's actually in the Caucasus um, and goes back a very long time into the past and has had all sorts of challenges, but it's still there. So, you know, even if we think the ecological crisis is a challenge, Armenia shows you can come through all sorts of shit and survive. And so these bags are from an art gallery in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. So it all seems to join up at the moment, anyway, at least on paper. So the first question on the paper is, anyone, fingers on buzzers, just shout it out if you know it. 
In which year was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein published? Thank you, sir. So you get the bag from the past, or rather not from the past, but from the state of things as we find them now. And that means you win a wonderful CD by Jennifer Walsh called Nature Data. Jenny. Nature Data is where we start from, right? So that's the prize that you win. Congratulations, sir. Come and collect it afterwards. The next question is, Blade Runner is an important text for Tim and how he thinks about some of the situations we find ourselves in. Now, in the original Blade Runner, Rutger Hauer's character, Roy Batty, quotes a well-known poet in the film. Which poet does he quote? Blake. Thank you. Who said Blake? Blake in the corner there. You, sir, get very special audio cassette from the old place that we call the past. And this cassette is one of 50. Mm. This is number 20 of 50. And on this tape is the sound of the Lung Summer and the Nogu Summer glaciers melting. Mm. Wow. That's what Blake teaches us. Good times, Gareth. Right, and the final question before mass consumption... At the front here. Right. No, but he can compete. He doesn't know anything that's going on in here. No, absolutely. Um, the final question for the future. Who, who is the link between the epic prog rock band Yes and the early 80s band Frankie Goes to Hollywood? Who is the link? Take Another way of asking the question, why is Welcome to the Pleasure Dome the greatest Yes album never broadcast as such? As a Yes album. Anyone? Go back to those dusty vinyl... All the music on it. Is anyone? Anyone? Yes. We'll come up with another question if you can't get that. Okay, last chance. No, anyone? No? And the, uh, no? Well, the answer is Trevor Horn, the producer. Did you say that? Hey, yay. Did you? Fantastic. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Terrible. Trevor Horn, in Yes, producer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And Yes was session musicians on Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. True. Who would have thought it, right? So you win The Future, which is the wonderful film project by Orit Ashery, who won the turn of the German Prize last year, her film project Party for Freedom, which is about the future. And the reason this is the Future Project, project uh, Prize because, written about this project, it was said, the site of boundaries and portals between inside and outside, the bodies of human become animal are selectively opened up and controlled, transgressed and violated politically, offering a subversive mimicry of the future that we desire to find ourselves in. So you have won the future. Thank you all very much for answering those questions. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thanks to the uh, London Review Bookshop and all the personnel therein. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, before you uh, talk to him more, more privately and personally, please give a warm oh. vote of appreciation to Timothy Morton. Oh. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.